Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John speaks with Kristen Diwan about youth in Saudi Arabia. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Kristen Diwan is a senior resident scholar at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington, D.C. Kristen, welcome to Babel. Hi, John. How are you this morning? Good, thanks. You've written about how the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, has tried to capture the imaginations of young people, try to capture the narrative and take it away from an Arab Spring concept. What do you mean by that and how has it worked? Well, I think you have to remember that Mohammed bin Salman himself is a young man. He's coming from a similar millennial generation that a lot of these young people that were coming up were. And he was very aware of what was happening because you could see this. And the main element is the social media element and the revolution and technology that was allowing a lot of young people to come together to find each other, to kind of express these interests and change and to create these movements, whether they be creative movements or political movements. So I think watching that, which they definitely were aware of that. They, the government. The government, and especially, I would say, of the younger generation, someone like Mohammed bin Salman, he was able to see that there was this strong desire for a shift and a basis on which you could create change. So I think when you look at the Saudi government today, they realize that there's a need to do a number of transformations within the kingdom. The main drivers are really economic because they know that the system can't be sustained on the oil economy as it is. They need economic diversification. They need young people to take on more responsibility and a broader jobs within a diversified economy in the private sector. And they know that the political order as it was standing was not really going to be sufficient either, particularly the kind of constraints that were imposed by the social and Islamist order that they had themselves created. <laughs> so there was a need for all of these changes. I think when they looked at that, and this was kind of happening over a long period of time, you can see this shift to this more nationalist order. And the nationalist order is the main ideological frame that can pull these things together. So it's a national order that's very much under the El Saud. And so the link to the royal family is still very, very strong. While it doesn't allow for the political demands <laughs> that were there, it does create more space for participation in public life. So really dramatically changing the public life of the kingdom, allowing a lot more gender mixing, allowing a lot more room for creative endeavors and for entertainment, things that were completely lacking really in the kingdom before. And so in a way, they were able to split this broader demands that were happening from below, meeting some of the interests in, the, in these social reforms and changes while really stymieing any of the political demands that were kind of inherent in some of these movements coming from below. So one of the interesting things that I was thinking about as I was reading some of your work on this is that on the one hand, Saudi Arabia is pushing a nationalist narrative. Part of what's also going on is Saudi Arabia is becoming less different from so many places in the region and the world. Saudi Arabia was really different 
And it feels like some of this is making Saudi Arabia more normal. And I say that not in a normative way, but it's just more like other places. And yet you also say that there is an important element of creating a sense of nationalism around being less different. How does that work? It's both nationalist while opening up and being more global and cosmopolitan at the same time. And I think there is sometimes you can see a bit of a tension between those two elements. But I do think when you look at how Saudi Arabia is approaching this, you can see the desire to still keep a strong Saudi element. So I guess from a perspective of yourself and myself, who looked at Saudi Arabia and put a lot of the character of Saudi Arabia and the old sort of religious establishment and those sorts of links, now there's a desire to really empower this creative class to generate Saudi cultural elements, right? They're creating through the Ministry of Culture visual arts programs. They're creating music programs, culinary programs, <laughs> all of these different ways, and encouraging them to kind of express their Saudiness in these new creative endeavors. So there clearly is energy around this idea, and young people are behaving in ways that I've never seen young people behave in Saudi Arabia. People tell me stories about in the 70s, there was more of this, but at least for this generation, it's things they've never seen before. But how effective do you think this effort is also at suppressing dissent? There are still conservatives in the kingdom, not only older conservatives, but younger conservatives. And how do they interact with, engage with this new creativity, the press for innovation? They're for decades. The kingdom has taught that innovation is suspect. What's the residue of that on this effort? Well, I think it's very difficult to see that because, as you mentioned, those voices have been very effectively repressed. I mean, we saw this through a wave of arrests that came right after Mohammed bin Salman took over the position of crown prince through a very targeted arrest campaign that got all of the most influential people within the Islamic movement, including some of these young reformers that were looking for a way to sort of marry a Saudi Islamic perspective with a new, more open order. They were very much silenced and arrested along with the others. And these were people that had credibility that were very present often on social media, so they were very well-known voices. So I think shutting them down sent a message to everyone else because they kind of targeted the thought leaders and in some areas the organizational leaders too of some of the older movements. So I think on that political level, that was very effective. And then, of course, at the same time, we had this real nationalist mobilization that was happening where anybody who was falling out of line with this new national narrative was portrayed as being anti-Saudi. I mean, we could see that way that that was used, for instance, against the women activists who in many ways were wanting changes that were along the lines of the social reforms that were being taken. But still, by the demands coming from below, they were being portrayed as linked to foreign feminists and, again, suspect. So I think that nationalist narrative was really important for disciplining this younger generation coming up and, and making them understand that this is going to be the way that things are going to go and you need to fall in line. And of course, the kind of seizure of the media. And I think the campaign against Qatar was very important in this because it basically discredited 
wide swaths of media that were very resonant within the kingdom of this kind of discourse of change that was taking place, whether it be a more liberal change or whether it be an Islamic kind of reformist change. The campaign against Qatar also cut off those links and gave the government more control over all of the messaging within the kingdom and the media within the kingdom. So to control the direction of change. And of course, this was all wrapped up in this broad shift under Vision 2030. So there was a really strong message that you need to get in line. So we know that we can definitely assume that there's a lot of discontent. There's a lot of disorientation with these incredible changes that have taken place, not completely being on board with all of them, especially because this wasn't like a slow transition at the time when it happened. In some ways, it wasn't very subtle. This is a complete cultural overhaul. So I think for sure there there's a lot of unease with that. But I think there's an understanding that there are big costs for speaking out against that. So the political suppression on that level has really worked. And then I think at the same time, overall, that strong narrative from above has its impact, right? I mean, we're going to be having a new generation that will grow up under this new nationalist narrative, under these new opportunities. So before, when there weren't as many things that you could do after school, if you were a public-minded person, you may have gone to an Islamist-run summer camp or something like that. Now there's going to be all these different creative outlets and different things. So I think the idea is that over time, that social engineering, social shift will take place, both through the political pressure, through the new narrative that's being established, through now a more unified media, and through just the new options and opportunities that are there, which many people are very, very excited about. So I know you've paid a lot of attention to the air world for a long time because I've known you for a long time, <laughs> and we've both paid attention to the air world. As you think about, there's two trends. One is that there's a transition going on as a new generation thinks this is normal. But the other is that it's hard to sustain new things, that there's a way that countries, cultures, societies revert to the mean. And we see that partly in the United States with politics going back and forth. There's almost the pendulum. There has been a real effort to coerce tolerance in Saudi Arabia. Does that become harder? Does it become easier because people just become more tolerant? How do you see the sort of next swing of the pendulum going as this is no longer the bright, shiny new thing, but people are putting attention on something else and this move recedes more into the background. There's a few elements to that. I mean, I think as I've been trying to describe, to some degree, all these changes aren't fully coercion, right? Because there were those shifts. Those cultural shifts were actually happening below the surface. And I think they were more extensive than we could see just because the social control in the old Islamist order wasn't allowing those viewpoints to be displayed as much. So I think those changes were already a bit on the ground. When we look at the nationalist narrative, you think, wow, this is very new for Saudi Arabia. But then when you look globally, this is a trend internationally, right? I mean, we're seeing this centralization of power, much stronger states, nationalist orientation everywhere. So in some ways, Saudi Arabia is coming into a place that's very familiar <laughs> with the new nationalist order that we're seeing everywhere. So I think to that degree, it may have a little bit more 
staying power than you might expect. But I think on the other hand, it all is going to be dependent on the economic changes, which are a lot of the drivers for a lot of these things taking place. We don't know yet how these big investments, these big bets that Saudi Arabia are making and these new industries, how well that's going to work out. So those economic challenges are really going to weigh on the kingdom. How are they going to create jobs for all of these Saudis moving forward? And this is not the UAE. This is not Qatar. This is a country that has a much larger population and a much bigger challenge in making that transition. But I think it will be interesting to see when you have the formal language shift, the formal political identity shift, does that mean that the opposition language will also shift? Because before you had a formal Islamist state, basically, in Saudi Arabia, and the opposition mirrored that in its Islamic language for change. So when it's a more economic-oriented nationalist state, maybe we'll get a different kind of opposition language, too. I think when I look across the Gulf right now and the language that a lot of opposition movements are making— they have an Islamist element sometimes, but it's much more populist, actually. And that is also, of course, the counterface of nationalism as well. I would be looking for a sort of more populist language to emerge from any opposition that emerges in the kingdom. You've mentioned other states in the Gulf. You, you spent a lot of time thinking about Kuwait. How are the processes in Saudi Arabia similar to processes going on in other places? Are there processes going on in other places that haven't yet reached Saudi Arabia? How should we situate Saudi Arabia in terms of a broader set of transitions in the Gulf as the Gulf looks toward an economic transition with a global energy transition? I think we do see a lot of mirroring of actions taken by the Saudi state of what had been happening in the UAE, actually, which I think is a big leader in a lot of these trends, whether it be the strong nationalist orientation the political suppression that goes along with that as well, the intolerance for anyone critiquing the strong direction of the national program, the crackdown on Islamist movements. We saw that in the UAE before. Also the strong social engineering and really wanting to educate and bring young Emiratis along so that they can contribute in different ways, either to the economy or to the state. So I think, you know, when I do look at Saudi Arabia, I see a lot of the things they're trying to mirror to the creation of new ports, the diversification strategies, even the new green agenda, a lot of these things had already been initiated in the UAE. So I think from the state level, a lot of those shifts are there and mirror changes in, in the UAE. On the social level, Kuwait's always interesting to look at because politically it's more open. So it allows for us to see a lot of things that may be happening in some of the other states, but are below the surface. Open. And has been more open for more than 30 years. Yeah. When I was looking at youth movements, I could see a lot of the young people who had left, for instance, Muslim Brotherhood movements out of frustration with the movement, and they were communicating with people in Saudi Arabia. Some of these reformers were going cross-border, neo-Arab nationalists, we could call it movements, also going across borders. So I think those social links exist, but definitely on the state level, you know, I think what they're trying to do is, is much more patterned on the UAE. Is what young people want the same in different states, or do you think that that people in different environments want really different things? I think there are a lot of similarities in these shifts. I think when we looked at 2011, the whole idea of dignity movements was very strong. The idea of having some voice from below, the frustration with a lot of the 
divisions within society was there. The desire for kind of a stronger national unity was there. This kind of generational desire that you can see everywhere, it wasn't just in the Gulf, the kind of classic millennials as being a bit more of a maker generation, you know, wanting to have more personal projects was there in that generation. So some of these things, I think, are generational across beyond the Gulf region and are driven a lot, maybe maybe by social media and some of these things and the impacts of that as well and the communication networks and the different ways of thinking that that brings about. Some of them are linked in the Arab environment because they share a common language, and we could see that in 2011. And now we can see the appeal of some of these national movements and a strong you know, leadership. There is some appeal in that. So... Even while I see a lot of Saudis paying really close attention still to, to Kuwaiti politics, you also have Kuwaitis that are looking at Saudi Arabia and saying like, gosh, I mean, I wish we had bigger push for kind of a social change, bigger movement, just some kind of national project going on. So I think all of the Gulf states are watching each other. And that's part of the interest is seeing kind of which things will win out as dominant trends. So the states are watching each other and the young people are watching each other. Yeah, both. And of course, the states are watching the young people as a person. <laughs> yeah. And of course, the states ultimately have a lot of the power and controlling a lot of the messaging, too, that's going on. How did you get started thinking about youth politics and youth culture? And, and how do you keep up with it? I was doing a number of different things. I was going a lot to the region, just talking to people. I was a professor, so I was teaching young people. I was actually doing a lot of work on Islamic movements and at that time on the Muslim Brotherhood movement and was just really struck by the difficulty that they were having in recruiting, looking at a lot of these counter trends that were happening within Islamic movements, dissident youth within those movements. And then kind of branched from there to seeing how they were connecting to liberal reformers that had started through actually student movements in the United States, which is really fascinating. Actually, you had a big reform movement in Kuwait that started really a lot of the ideas from youth politics in the United States and, and in the UK, and then brought that back home to what I think is the first reform movement that was successful and kind of mobilizing people on the streets through that time they didn't have Twitter or anything you know, that were calling for, for protests in the street. And they actually got a reform into the political electoral system at, at that time. So I think just sort of watching the politics, you could see these shifts happening across the board. You could see this new energy amongst younger generations. And I think when social media did come about, it was, it was much easier to follow on Twitter because all of these people were very present and you could see very clearly their views. And for a while it was really open. So it was, it was fascinating to see them connecting across different countries. And I read Arabic, so this was mostly happening in Arabic. So that was one way to track it. I think it's much more difficult to do that now. It is much more state driven now and state controlled. I run a blog called Millennial Gulf, and the initial idea of that was to look for youth-led movements and initiatives, and that was very easy to do at the time. And now you could see the states are much more kind of controlling a lot of this space, and so it's much harder to find things that aren't connected to the state anymore. Part of that has been the state realizing this energy and this need to respond to youth demands, or you can more cynically say control youth demands, but they are much more active now in, in organizing this youth space and presenting much more initiatives that respond to youth demands. Kristen Duan, thank you very much for joining us on Babel. Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you, John, as always.
So one of the things that struck me about Dr. Dewan's comments are this idea that although a lot of observers see the nationalism in Saudi Arabia as this new phenomenon there, it's kind of this rising phenomenon across the globe. How should we situate Saudi Arabia in that? And how should we think about the broader Middle East? The question of what the nation state should be in the Middle East is something that Arabs have been talking about for more than 100 years. And it's something that came up with ISIS. Right? I mean, the question is, is there a single Arab nation or should the nation states be dominant? And one of the main political issues for the Ba'ath Party is they talked about creating a single Arab nation. The fact that the Ba'ath Party in Syria, the Ba'ath Party in Iraq were fighting over what that meant was a, it was a sign of just how difficult it is to work out the details. But I think to me, when she was talking about the rise of Saudi nationalism, it was yet another sign of Saudi Arabia becoming less different than other countries in the world. And, and Saudi Arabia had started being different. Their money allowed them to be very different. And it's almost like the rules of gravity have kicked in for the government. They say, you know, we have the same responsibilities as other governments. We have the same roles as other governments. Some of the constraints that make governments act certain ways that govern the relationship between a population and the government affects us too. And we have to think about ourselves. We have to think about what it is to be a Saudi, what it is to be a Saudi citizen. And this rising nationalism combined with a rising distinctiveness, it's not just that you get a check from the Saudi government, but there are cultural things, there are things that, that align you. It struck me as yet another sign that, that the rules of gravity have reasserted themselves and Saudi Arabia is becoming less unique. And certainly the government in Saudi Arabia now wants Saudi Arabia to be less unique. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, culturally speaking, as Diwan said, and as John is saying, the struggle to create a sense of nationalism or identity isn't a new one in the Middle East. I mean, many of the Middle Eastern countries are somewhat new or their borders are arbitrary and waves of mass displacement in the past century has also affected this process of identity formation. And you see this quite acutely in places like Jordan. You know, it's a country where more than half the population are Palestinians. So Jordan had to build up this image of sort of the Bedouin in the desert to differentiate itself. And this was quite explicit in the tourism industry, for example, but also on Jordanian television for years, the Jordanian accent was the only one allowed, actually. But I think what also is interesting is how much this sense of national identity, both in Saudi Arabia and elsewhere in the Middle East, and for that matter in the world, will be tied to particular people or rulers to insulate them from any social or political movements which could rupture their authority. And you see this with, you know, I guess, make America great again here in the United States, but Putin arguably has the same tagline for Russia. And these taglines are less about Islam or communism or capitalism or Baathism or any ideology which could potentially unite people across borders in favor of this sense of nationalism. So I think getting that part right, how do you differentiate yourself, but also how do you integrate yourself within this global community is something that Saudi Arabia is clearly going to need to work out in the years ahead. I think thinking about this idea of differentiating the state or a particular country from others, I'm also struck by the comments Dr. Duan made about the UAE and how states in the Gulf react to one another as they confront these challenges that are kind of the same across the board. As we think about the UAE being an innovation and diversifying the economy and elsewhere, 
how should we think about Gulf interactions with one another or how they confront these rising challenges? She said that they look to each other. The peoples look to each other. They look to other states in the Gulf. How should we think about that? Yeah, one of the really interesting things is the UAE started off being cautious. The first paved road in Abu Dhabi was built 60 years ago. It's not that long ago. And the UAE is a country that traditionally held back, wanted to learn from others' mistakes. Don't make the mistakes of Kuwait. Don't commit to the excesses of Saudi Arabia. What's really interesting is in the last 20 years, the UAE has had a sense of urgency. And I think it's an interesting consequence of the influence of Dubai on the rest of the UAE in a sense that Dubai made a profound investment in container shipping in the 1970s when other places hadn't, and it's really paid off. The UAE seems to be much more committed to moving forward, to be willing to take risks, but the UAE is also smaller. You're only talking about a million citizens. So how does the UAE's willingness to explore, the UAE's willingness to draw on the example of Dubai, the UAE willingness to experiment relate to a country like Saudi Arabia with probably 25 million citizens. It's a whole different set of problems. What the Saudi leadership now is trying to do is saying we can be just as experimental, we can be just as exploratory as the UAE has been. And one of the big questions for Saudi Arabia and the world is, is that assessment correct? I wonder what you think, John, of how that is directed in some way by this publicized notion that the United States is going to rebalance towards the Middle East and UAE acknowledging that it is a small country with a small population. So how does it create kind of an outsized political, military, diplomatic presence in the region and beyond? And you kind of see that with UAE being much more fearless in the sense of military endeavors in Libya, but also normalization with Israel and now Syria, and even reaching out to, to Turkey more recently. I just, I wonder if this is an effort on their behalf to kind of rebalance themselves within the region and sort of make a name for themselves so that they are left less vulnerable after this pivot, this U.S. pivot, at least to Asia. The UAE has always been interested in balancing. I think one of the things that Mohammed bin Zayed has been doing for more than 20 years is having a policy that is centered on the United States, but not completely reliant on the United States. They certainly have F-16s at their air bases, but they also have French planes at their air bases. There are a quarter million Chinese in the UAE, and the UAE is quite forward-leaning in becoming and having a comprehensive strategic partnership with China, the highest level of partnership that China has, while it builds a close relationship with the United States. To me, what the UAE has demonstrated is how this dynamic balancing with the, U the United States is the principal partner, but it can't be the only partner. Saudi Arabia would like to do something similar. And Saudi Arabia has certainly turned to other countries like they did when they acquired Chinese missiles in 1988 because they couldn't get things from the United States. But I think there, there's a certain agility to the way the UAE has been able to adapt, which other countries are eager 
to adopt. And I think what Saudi Arabia in particular would like to do, Saudi Arabia doesn't have a reputation for being agile as a government. And I think they'd like to be a lot more agile. And sometimes they do things quickly and they turn out not to be good ideas. And, and certainly the their longstanding involvement in Yemen was never intended to be a longstanding involvement in Yemen. I think also one of the things that I kind of found striking is this idea of the growing generational shift in the Gulf. And that's something that we see also across the Middle East. And I wonder if there's something to be said about the rising need to capture the support of youth across the region. I know we published a meze just earlier this month on dueling institutions trying to capture the youth support in Libya through this idea of like patronage and marriage. So I guess, is that something that we're going to be seeing more of across the region? Are leaders going to have to rethink the way that they engage with their broader publics, but more importantly, the youth in the public? I mean, we've been talking about the youth bulge in MENA or the Middle East and North Africa for a really long time. Um, something like 30% of the population across the region is under 14. And that percentage doubles if you're talking about under 25. And many of these young people are unemployed or underemployed. And this population isn't really seeing opportunities, but at the same time, they have more access to what's available in other parts of the world like never before through you know, media, social media, student exchanges, things like that. And at the same time, Gulf countries in particular that have seen this enormous growth through oil know that this won't last forever. Revolutions are most likely to occur when a prolonged period of economic and social development like you've seen in the Gulf is followed by sort of a sharp reversal or regression in fortunes. So I think that these governments know that they need to close this gap between realities and expectations, not just now, but also in a post-fossil fuel future. You know, the other piece of this is there's a demographic piece, but there's also an information and media piece. It was one thing when they dealt with a revolution that terrestrial media, that is sort of local television stations and radio and, and newspapers, had to deal with the influx of satellite television, which was by its nature transboundary. Al Jazeera, starting in 1996, was able to create a regional dialogue on politics and religion and culture and everything else. Now you have a completely demand-driven media environment, largely social media. Anybody can become influential. Governments are trying to be better at influencing that environment. And Kristen talked a little bit about that. But governments understand now that they have to engage young people, not by coercing them, but by attracting them. And it seems to me that because they can't control the broader environment in nearly the same way. And they are trying to use innovative tools. They're using influencers. They're trying to create national dialogues. They're building this nationalism. But it seems to me that it is a response to a very different information environment. It's a response to a very different economic environment. It's in response to a demographic reality, which, as Natasha says, looking forward to the economies of the region, the governments are going to have to become much more, much more agile. How this all plays out remains uncertain to both governments and their populations. But what is striking is just how much the terms of that relationship are different. And what I find very interesting about places in the Gulf in particular, although I think you see it elsewhere in the region as well, is governments are trying to create 
post-political public life. They're trying to say, we can control all these instruments. We can create institutions. We can create channels of information. We can do it, and we have our finger on this, plus with surveillance and other tools. We have our finger on this, and you don't have to have competitive races for public office. You don't have to ask people what they We know what people think. We're monitoring what people think, and the government is meeting their needs. A, I'm not sure how well that works over time. B, I'm not sure how well that works when the economic situation changes a lot. And as Natasha points out, you may have to be explaining why things are much worse rather than much better. It's easier to explain why things are better. People tend to accept explanations for why things are much better. They tend to be a little more skeptical for why things are much worse. It seems to me that and one of the reasons Kristen's work is so interesting is how do governments navigate this and how do populations navigate this? Because this is clearly the challenge of the next several decades. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast. 